pluralism is essentially saying that nothing is true. And that's kind of the skeleton lurking in that closet is by saying that everything is true, you're saying that nothing is true because all of these truths with pluralism contradict each other. They can't all be right, but they can all be wrong. So if they're all gonna be equal, they can, e they can all equally be wrong, which means there's no reason to really defend any of them. The only thing you're not allowed to have in pluralism is conviction. Life as a mom can be really hard and it can seem like we have nothing left to pour out. I'm Tina and I'm here to tell you that you're not alone. Join me every week as we talk about God's purpose in our marriage and motherhood. Though at times those feelings of inadequacy can be overwhelming, there is so much joy to be had in the ordinary if we just take a few moments to find it. If you are a regular listener, you may have heard the first part of my conversation last week with apologist and author Hilary Morgan Ferrer. Hilary founded Mama Bear Apologetics, which is a valuable resource for training ourselves and our children to think critically, love biblically, and stand firm against the cultural tide. Last week, we talked about equipping our children to defend their faith and not be lured away by a culture that tries so hard to destroy it. This week, we dive deeper into the topics of pluralism, tolerance, secular word definition, sexuality, and balancing our love for others with our pursuit of truth and justice that we find in scriptures. Without further delay, let's get into it. Something that really stuck out to me in the first book was mm -hmm. chapter 11 on pluralism. And, and earlier in the book, you had talked about linguistic theft. So maybe mm -hmm. if we could touch on what that is, and then um, pluralism and tolerance. Okay. Because I, I feel like that's, that's a pretty big thing that I've noticed mm -hmm. a lot lately. Yeah. So linguistic theft, this is one of those concepts that I kept reading about everywhere, but nobody had a name for it. And I'm like, well, I want something to call it. And I, I so I finally coined a word, um, linguistic theft. And it was kind of cool because I had someone on our, on our podcast, someone, there was, a, I was like terrified. I was like, what if this actually does have a word? And then I've just created a second word. But I had someone with a PhD in linguistics who actually said, uh, that I was able to ask, is there a word for this? And they're like, no, there's not. So I was like, yes. Um, so I didn't recreate anything. So linguistic theft, tell your friends. Um, it's the uh, <laughs> linguistic theft is when you purposely take a word that everybody knows the meaning to it, and then you change the meaning. And then you then you keep using it in conversation as if it still had the same meaning before. So usually it's going to be things with a really, really strong positive connotation or really, really strong negative connotations. So the positive connotations that we have are things like love. Love is love, right? <laughs> or um, we're being told that in order to love our neighbor, we need to embrace whatever identity it is that they have chosen for themselves. And I kid you not, 
there are three confirmed cases in three different states of kids that are now identifying as either a cat or a dog, that they're putting litter boxes in the, the school for the cat to use, and they are allowing the dog to bark. One of my mama bears on my launch team has a kid in her, uh, in her son's class allowed to bark in order to answer a question. So when I say embrace whatever identity they choose, I mean embrace whatever identity they choose. And that is what it means to love. Tolerance is one of those ones where tolerance used to mean to live in peace despite disagreement. So the things that you have to have in order for tolerance to exist is you have to have disagreement. If you don't have disagreement, then you don't need tolerance because everybody agrees. Um, but what tolerance has been turned into is that not only do you tr treat everybody's truths, you know, this whole truth was never supposed to have a possessive pronoun in front of it. There was never supposed to be my truth, his truth, her truth. It's truth. And then maybe someone's experience or maybe someone's opinion. And those were three different things, but those have all been lumped under the banner of truth now. Tolerance now means that you accept that everybody's truth is equally valid. And not only that, it's moved from accepting that they're equally valid to embracing it to celebrating it. Think about all the things where we're supposed to now celebrate somebody's choice. I, the, the thing that comes to mind uh, first is the Shout Your Abortion campaign. The world is not going to allow us just to disagree. They want us to promote that which they are doing. So the Shout Your Abortion campaign, the whole, just the whole pride campaign in general for all the LGBTQ stuff, it's not just living in peace despite disagreement. It is actively celebrating someone's choice. Uh, and that's what it means to, to be tolerant. And if you're not, then you're considered intolerant. And nobody wants to be intolerant. They don't want to be a bigot. Bigot's another one of those words that basically, unless you celebrate everybody's choice, you're automatically a bigot. Um, so that's another word that's been uh, changed. The word hate. Oh my gosh. The word hate is anytime. So now, now that we've made tolerance and love to affirm and celebrate whatever someone, whatever their, you know, they think their truth is, hate is now defined as disagreement. So what was once required for tolerance, namely disagreement, is now defined as hate. If you think of hate speech, if a Christian um, believes that marriage is between a man and a woman for life, that is now hate speech. In fact, Canada, Canada just passed a law that basically uh, criminalizes things like this, especially within a therapy setting, that anytime you make living in the body that you were born with and choosing to be in a, you know, a, a heterosexual marriage, that if you act like that's any better than any other choices, then that is considered hate and you can be prosecuted for it now. So these are just some of the words that we are seeing come out. And then also the words justice. The idea of justice, mm -hmm. I, it was interesting when I was reading through and when I was doing the study for book two, was the words for justice and righteousness were the same. They were interchangeable in so many places. I mean, the exact same Greek word. And so justice is so tied to godliness and what judgment would God make? And now justice is if anyone has less social power than another group, then that's automatically injustice and we need to make it so that it's just. And that would you see it in uh, in terms like reproductive justice, which means that a woman, uh, since a man is never forced to carry a pregnancy to term in his body, then it is unjust that a woman should ever have to carry an unwanted pregnancy to term in her body to, in order to have 
justice the way the world is defining justice, she must have the option to never have to carry an unwanted pregnancy to term in her body. Now she's equal with men. So these are just some of the ways that these words have been um, tossed around. Now, uh, you were talking about it in terms of, uh, had you had you asked about pluralism yet? I, I think I did. I mentioned that pluralism was something that really stuck out to me in the first book and how there's that idea that we need to be accepting or like the linguistic theft of tolerance mm-hmm. um, or promoting. It's hard so, trying to explain that to children. Yes. Yes. Where, you know what, we don't agree with this at home. And the Bible says this, like this is who God is. And this is, you know, what we should be as Paul says, mirror me or mimic me as I try to mimic Christ, mm-hmm. um, as I strive to do that. And so as we're we're trying to show them who God is and how we should be following him and trying to be more Christ-like, and this is what God says in these situations, but then their trusted teachers or whoever else is, they're telling them that they need to be accepting and tolerant and, and you can't say anything negative about these other people. So anyway, the, mm-hmm. the pluralism idea of maybe you need to connect, correct my definition too, <laughs> okay. where, where everyone is right. Like everybody's answer is right. And you can't tell anyone that their answer is wrong. Yep. This is kind of the all paths okay. lead to God thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that we have to realize that's going on first here is that our children have probably already been absorbed this postmodern culture that we're in. So I want to talk a little bit about about pre-modern, modern, and postmodern, because I think you need to understand those in order to understand where pluralism came from. Um, And all of this has to do with where do we find truth? Everything is about truth. And when you think about it, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, uh, truth is a person, it's Christ. But Christ is also the word of God. The word um, uh, in the beginning was the word and the word became flesh. That flesh was Jesus. That word is truth. The flesh, um, anyway, all this, sorry, I'm getting a little confused. The word became flesh. That flesh is Jesus. Jesus is the truth. So it's kind of like an A equals B equals C. So A equals C kind of thing. Um, but if our kids do not believe that absolute truth even exists, we can tell them all day, this is the truth about who God is. And what they're going to interpret that is, that's true for you. Because pre-moderns, so let's go through this, pre-moderns believed, and this is basically the time up until the scientific revolution, they believed that ultimate truth was revealed, meaning that it had to come from God or the gods, you know, because we still had all sorts of pluralism that was going on. Ancient Rome, where Christianity was birthed, was a very pluralistic nation. Um, that all these different paths to God were equally valid, but they still believed that truth was revealed from God or the gods and the priests were the authorities. Now you move forward into modernism where all of a sudden we discover science, which by the way, was pioneered by Christians who said, because God is, uh, you know, noble and he works in law-like ways, then we should expect to find nature reflecting him in law-like ways, which they found. That was the birth of science. But what happened was instead of now God being able to reveal truth, all of a sudden man says, okay, we don't need God anymore. All truth can be revealed through science. Well, they thought that all truth, meaning even moral truths, were going to be revealed through science. And they thought everybody was going to come into this really kumbaya universal acceptance of everything because now we could prove everything. 
once they realized that that couldn't happen, we shifted into what is known as postmodernism, where they realized, well, we can't prove everything for truth. Can we even know truth? And postmodernism is really where everything started to go wonky, where this idea that you can't even know truth. And from there, we have to decide because we cannot live without truth. We're like truth vacuums. We need something to fill that. And so if it didn't come from God, where did it come from? Okay, maybe it came from science. Okay, if we can't get it from science, where else can it come from? Well, it can come from my emotions or we just don't know. And whatever anybody feels, whatever anybody believes, that can be true for them. And to say otherwise is basically arrogant because nobody has the right to claim exclusive truth. And this is really what, actually, this is what the the the, the Christians in Rome were dealing with because they were coming from a place where, you know, they the Rome was willing to add the Christian God on to their other pantheon of gods, but Christians were not saying that they would not, basically they wouldn't say Caesar is Lord because that was like the main, the only thing you had to do is swear loyalty to the government. Caesar is Lord. That's all they had to do. The true Christians could not say that. No, only Jesus is Lord. And because they were exclusive in their beliefs that they said, this is the only way, that is where we saw the persecution happening. And that's where we're seeing the persecution happening now is we're coming from just as pluralistic and relativistic as the Roman world was in first century in order to, it's kind of like in order to keep the peace. Because if you live in a society where everybody kind of already believes the same thing, um, it's actually a pretty orderly society and the people all believe the same thing, but that's not the, that's not the world that we live in. So in order to keep the peace, which now we're elevating peace, as the highest good that you can possibly have. Truth is not the highest good. Peace is the highest good. In order to have that peace, we have to say that everybody is equally true. And you even move on from pluralism into new spirituality, where now I as an individual can now just pick and choose from all these different faith religions and pick which ones I like the most and kind of create this buffet-style choose-your-own-religion. Pluralism is essentially saying that nothing is true. And that's kind of the skeleton lurking in that closet is by saying that everything is true, you're saying that nothing is true because all of these truths with pluralism contradict each other. They can't all be right, but they can all be wrong. So if they're all going to be equal, they can they can all equally be wrong, which means there's no reason to really defend any of them. The only thing you're not allowed to have in pluralism is conviction. If you have conviction in a pluralistic society, that's basically the only way you can go wrong. So when Paul tells the believers, I believe in Corinthians, maybe it's Romans 12, but when he says live in peace, yeah, ha, uh, maybe, maybe today's definition of peace, yes, if, you know, like maybe that's off too, yep. but um, so how do we live in peace with tolerance? Um, I believe in the book you talked about respecting somebody in the image of God. So this is something that I emphasize uh, in the second book, and we actually really emphasize it in the study guide for the second book, which is coming out next fall. And that's the idea of being made in the image of God versus reflecting the image of God. So being made in the image and likeness of God is, is an identity issue. Um, we are all, as humans, made in the image and likeness of God. And so we need to treat other people as individuals made in the image and likeness of God, that there is, it's in, in theology in Latin, it's called the Imago Dei, um, that we all bear this image of God. And, and there's been all sorts of debate, what exactly is it about humans 
the reflect this image of God? Is it the the extent of our intellect? Is it the fact that we can create? Is it, um, you know, marriage? Is it, there's all sorts of different things, and I'm not sure if I've really come to a conclusion or because uh, there's so many different thoughts on this exactly what it is. But there is one thing we know: it exists and it exists from conception. Uh, that as long as something is biologically human, fully human, um, then there is something there that is made in the image and likeness of God. Now, that being said, we need to be teaching our kids that every single person is made in the image and likeness of God and therefore worthy of dignity and respect. However, we can choose actions that do not reflect God and God's image. So when someone steals, they're made in the image and likeness of God, but they are not reflecting that image and likeness of God. Uh, when someone lies, they're not reflecting that image of likeness of God. Um, sex and gender, our sexualities, our marriages, they can reflect God or they cannot reflect God. And it says nothing about if these individuals were created in the image and likeness of God. They were. But we can choose actions that don't reflect that. And so I think kind of phrasing it like that so that it it takes away that real black and white thinking of either accept this person or I reject this person. No, we can always accept the person, but we don't have to always accept their actions or their beliefs. That beliefs can also reflect what God says in his word or beliefs cannot reflect what God says in his word. And, you know, when kids are young, we need to be filling them with truth of what does the Bible say. But as they get older, we need to be giving them reasons for why we believe this, this book here is truth and the other ones are not because otherwise they're just going to interpret it again. This is our family's truth, not this is the truth. And that is there's a big difference and you may not know the difference that of what your kids are absorbing until it's a lot further down the road and you didn't realize that they had really absorbed that postmodern idea that uh, nobody can know the truth for sure. So we're just passing on our family tradition. Now, I bought Mama Bear Apologetics Guide to Sexuality, but I, at the time, I didn't think it would apply to our family yet. <laughs> Boy, was I wrong. Um, so who uh, who would you say it is written for and why do we need it? I mean, I think it's always ideal to be teaching our kids what the truth is about um, marriage, sex, gender, family from as early age as possible. That being said, it still is applicable for middle school, high school, even college kids, because I, I don't know. That's like saying, is there is there an expiration date on truth? And I don't think there is. And if your kids are older, it's still, it's still relevant. If your kids are younger, it's still relevant. Now you might be able to, you know, form them easier from when they're younger. And this is kind of giving you an idea of how to build something, you know, how to build this worldview from, from scratch. But, um, I think that even as adults, we have in, imbibed false views about marriage and about sex that, um, yeah, that I, I don't think any of us are beyond being corrected. There is some parts in the book there. You know, I grew up Christian. I grew up knowing sex was for marriage. And, you know, I did the true love whites. I did all that stuff. But and even if I was technically a virgin when, you know, my husband and I got married, I know that there were times before that within my heart wasn't it's like I did it because I knew this this was what I was supposed to do and not because this is what not because I wanted to so there was a book that my husband gave me when we were dating called um sex and the supremacy of Christ that was edited by John Piper and it was a series of conference talks that people turned into chapters 
in this book, but one of his main theses at the beginning is that our sexuality is absolutely intertwined with our ability to see God accurately. And so if you introduce a deviation in, in our view of God, you introduce a deviation usually in our sexuality that you cannot compartmentalize these two things. They will affect one another. And that was the first time where I realized, oh, that is why God wanted me to save sex for marriages. He designed it in a certain way. And if I went outside that design, not only would, you know, the host of all the other stuff that they try to scare you with all the STDs and unwanted pregnancies, which, you know, are all true. But to me, the thing that really mattered is I wouldn't see God accurately. And for me to be able to see God accurately, that mattered to me. And once I accepted that of, whoa, that's what this is, all of a sudden, all my motivation for wanting to stay chaste before marriage became internal. It like wasn't really even a struggle after that. I wanted to stay so far away from something that would actually change my ability to see God correctly. And I think I was fully convinced of that is because I saw friends go down this road. I saw friends who had been leaders with me in youth group or leaders with me in Campus Crusade or leaders with me in um, being youth ministers get into sexual relationships and their view of God started to change to where some of them walk completely away from the Lord. Uh, one of them, there are actually no, so two, two people that I know have just gone completely pagan. One of them teaches classes in New York uh, about uh, goddess worship and sex. And there's another one that I, I describe in the book that the leads, I'm not even going to say what she does. She leads groups of women on, um, on full moons doing stuff with blood and other things that shouldn't be done. I mean, these were leaders in the Christian church. Wow. Um, but at, at the very least, when someone really embraces this, this um, sex outside of marriage, I've seen them just slowly walk away from the Lord. And so I knew when I saw that, it was like this aha moment, this aha moment of that's why I keep seeing this happen, because you can't separate our sexuality and our ability to see God correctly. So there's no age really that is too young for that. And then the second aha moment was when I was writing this book, and it was based on um, this book by a guy named Christopher West. And he is summarizing research done by jo uh, Pope John Paul II, who has an incredible tome just on, I think it's called Male and Female. He created them about what's called the theology of the body. And uh, I, I believe it was them. It was Tim Keller had said it. Somebody else had said it. But sex is the marital recitation of vows, of marriage vows in bodily form. So basically... I think this is, if we treat sex like that, if we think about those vows that we made on our wedding day, is our, sec, uh, is our sexual relationships, even with our spouses, reflecting that care and concern, that, that vow, that promise to, to love, to cherish? And really, so there, there's really no age, I think, that, that can't learn a little bit more because sex has just been so corrupted in our society. And I think it's even seeped into the church. I don't remember uh, this all being discussed when I was the age that our boys are now. Mm -hmm. And that, so that's some, it was always something we'll talk about when you're older. Mm -hmm. um, for example, how do we use passages like Romans 1? Romans 1, I think one of the greatest takeaways from Romans 1, and this was my greatest takeaway, is the concept of ingratitude. That if you look at the whole mess that comes in Romans 1, it all starts with ingratitude. 
And I have found in my own personal life that gratitude is the gatekeeper for a lot of other different sins. That once ingratitude, once ingratitude sets in, all these other sins are are can come fl- rushing in. Because even pride, sometimes people want to make pride the root of everything. Well, pride can't come unless you don't feel like you're being given what you're due, which means you are not grateful for what you have. So I think with Romans 1, um, you can talk about that. You might not necessarily want to go through everything, but I'll, I'll tell you what, the world is not treating your kids like they're not talking about this. So if, if I was talking with Amy, my, my co-author on this book, uh, recently, there was a Sesame Street day that uh, was, you know, family day. And so they were showing the different types of families, which, by the way, this is in the new sex education standards for things that kindergarten should be learning, the different types of families, including same-sex parents. So they are being introduced to this as early as Sesame Street in kindergarten. We have all these different uh, LGBT characters that are coming out in cartoons. Now, cartoons in children's programming, when you and I were younger, probably meant that there's no sexual there's no sexual messages going on because that's not appropriate for children. That is not the case anymore. Now it's trying to get children to accept all of these different types of sexual preferences and see them as normal from an age where they're um, early enough to where they are just accepting everything blindly. In fact, there was a psychologist talking about the Sesame Street episode where she was saying this is the greatest thing ever because we can get to children before their parents' biases have set in. So this idea that we need to wait till middle school, if we're waiting until middle school to talk to our kids about this, we're years too late because cartoons and ads and radio and television and music have already started in on that. And they are actively trying to recruit your children and indoctrinate your children into thinking that every single kind of sexual preference and every single kind of sexual choice um, is is all equal and valid and should be celebrated and that whatever gender you even want to present yourself as, and it's not even limited to just two, there's this whole spectrum of with with all these crazy different words for talking about how male or how female you are, how masculine, how feminine. It, this whole idea of boys and girls is just too restrictive now. And they are being trained from early on according to these sex education standards and according to all the media to basically buy into this idea that all these other things are normal and therefore good. So in talking about about that, where you can choose how much male or how much female or whatever title you want to give it, uh-huh. um, how can parents speak truth to their children about situations like that mm-hmm. without harming future opportunity for witnessing and, and still being able to have a positive impact mm-hmm. on the lives of of children? So say, say a a child, there's somebody in a in a younger elementary classroom who decides, you know what, I'm I actually like girl things better, and I mm-hmm. would like to now be a wear girl things, and then eventually change the name to a girl name, and you know, like all these things, like like at home, you might be telling your child that, well, that's not how it is. How much do they actually have to get into this stuff? Because I know that my child is not knowledgeable enough to combat that himself yeah. in the mm-hmm. classroom. So if we're wanting to combat this, like if our children are being presented to this, what what do we do to where they can still have a ministry towards this child? And I think this is, again, where it comes back to teaching them that all humans, no matter what, are made in the image and likeness of God. 
um, the image of God. He created the male and female. He created them. That male and female aspect of our identity is part of the image of God. But again, we've if we've also taught them, not everything that people do is reflecting the image of God. So we can say, is this person made in the image of God? Im- image of God? Yes. How do we pe- treat people that are made in the image of God with dignity and respect? Is this person um, making decisions about who they are that reflect God's image? No. Is it our job to tell them that? Not necessarily. <laughs> no. And so just learning how to say this is not our job. Our job is not to go out and point out every time that someone is not behaving in a way that reflects the image of God. Aren't we glad that that's not all the Christian's job because we'd be pointing our fingers at each other all the time. Uh, So I think having them really, really be able to separate those two things, which might be hard for the littles. Um, but the more, again, the more we repeat that to them, the more they're going to, that's going to get embedded into their brain. And that's just going to become their automatic response with everything to distinguish. And this is part of the discernment. This is the chew and spit. This is the uh, separating the good from the bad, accepting what's good, rejecting which is bad. But we're looking at the whole enchilada first. Um, and in this case, that whole enchilada is the person made in the image of God. Yeah, I loved that chew and spit example that you gave in the book. I was like, that makes so much sense to me. (laughs) What apologetics resources do you know of that you would recommend for parents or friends, family, anybody Mm -hmm. who's interested in more? For for anyone that's really wanting to know the basic apologetics of um, basically, you know, truth, can we know truth? Uh, did Jesus really rise from the dead? And uh, is the is the is the Bible reliable? I would always point them to, again to cold case Christianity. There's even a cold case Christianity for kids, so you can uh, go through that with your kids as well. But I love that resource. In terms of parents having conversations with their kids, I think Natasha Crane does a great job in her talking with your kids about series, talking with your kids about God, talking with your kids about Jesus where she actually kind of gives breaks down a lot of these concepts and then gives actual real life conversational guides for opening up the conversation, how to talk about it. I think it's one of those things that if, if I were a parent, I would put those each on note cards and have a big fishbowl in the middle of the table. And we say, okay, what are we talking about tonight? Picking out a, picking out a, you know, a question from there and then starting to discuss it, finding out what the kids what, what do you think about it? What have you heard your friends say about this? Have you heard your friends talking about this? Okay, let's talk about this from a Christian perspective. Um, so that, I would say anyone that has boys, when it comes to sexuality issues, there's um, there's a DVD, um, oh golly, what's it called? It, it's, if you go to um, Living, Living Hope Ministries in Arlington, Texas, there's this uh, um, DVD series on understanding homosexuality in girls and understanding homosexuality in boys. Um, any parents of boys, I recommend getting that DVD that specifically talks to the boys because it's a very good comprehensive look at sort of what 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 do our kids need from us at different stages in order to develop healthy in a sexual way. It's And it goes around attention, affirmation, and there was a, a third A. He's got the three A's and he talks about it at the different age age ranges. If you have girls, I highly recommend two different books. Number one is called Unprotected. And especially if you have girls that are um, in middle school or above high school, college, you need to read this together. Unprotected by Miriam Grossman uh, that talks about basically all the different ramifications of sexual activity and hookup culture. It's specifically addressing hookup culture. Also, there's a Abigail Schreier book called Irreversible Damage, 
uh, the transgender craze that's seducing our young girls. And this is something that uh, parents of girls especially, uh, I think it would behoove them to understand what is going on on a social level in terms of this transgender movement, um, because I think it's very applicable. Uh, and then just for basic apologetics resources, if you go on to mamabearapologetics.com, we have um, a resources page with a little downloadable that has different resources in it for different age ranges, different topics, stuff like that. And yeah, so that that would be kind of what we recommend there across the board. Well, thank you, Hillary, for joining me today. Um, we went long and I and I feel like I could just like, keep asking more and more questions. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I want to thank Hillary again for her time. The entire team at Mama Bear Apologetics was so kind and willing to serve. I'd really encourage you to check out their ministry and view their resources that they have on their website. And if you haven't already listened to last week's episode, you should do that. I know that there were a ton of resources mentioned in today's episode. Don't worry, every last one of them will be in the show notes. This week's show notes may just turn into your 2022 reading list. So, with so many amazing podcast resources out there, I'm honored that you would spend some time with me today. Until next week, refresh yourself in the Lord, for His mercies are new every morning.